Born out of the conservative trickle-down economics of the Reagan administration, the federal low-income housing tax credit has, somewhat improbably, become the single largest creator of affordable housing in the United States. Since 1986, the tax credit program has created some 2.5 million rental units and about 90% of the affordable housing built across the nation. The program continues to receive bipartisan support in Congress, but... As evidenced by the dearth of actually affordable housing to all sectors of American society and the exploding affordability crisis in urban areas around the nation, the low-income tax credit has its flaws and shortcomings. Dan Emanuel is a research analyst with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, and he joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock bus. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your work with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. What, what does that organization do and, and what work do you do for them? Sure. So I, I do research for the coalition. We're a, we're a national uh, research and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. And our focus is on improving federal rental housing policy uh, to benefit the lowest income renters in the United States. So let's talk about the low income housing tax credit. How did that get started? That got started around 1986 during tax reform uh, in, in the mid 80s there as a, as a kind of a experimental way to try to develop new uh, rental housing. What sorts of programs did it replace and what made this experimental at the time? I think um, we hadn't really taken an approach based on the tax code before. Um, so the idea, I think it was, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, I think maybe meant to replace uh, public housing, which I think a lot of, you know, conservatives and probably also neoliberals at the time probably viewed as a failure. So I, I know this is an incredibly complicated program, but if you were going to sort of give us a primer version of how the tax credit works, can you describe the basic idea of how the tax credit is intended to function? Sure. So essentially, uh, every year, uh, states, um, the IRS allocates uh, a tax credits to every state. And then the, the state develops something called a qualified allocation plan, in which developers then apply for, based on this plan, apply for the credits and competitively, right? And the state awards the, the credits to developers, successful applicants, right? And then the applicants themselves are able to essentially sell off the credits to raise uh, capital for development. That is a very, like, Cliff Notes version. <laughs> and what kind of housing does the uh, tax credit program support? It supports primarily rental housing. There's a, a small amount that ends up getting used for home ownership, I think. Um, but generally... Um, Either a project that receives the credits has to um, it has to have either forty percent of the units set aside for households earning sixty percent or less of the area median income, or it has to have twenty percent of the units set aside for households earning fifty percent or less of the area median income. So, what happens? Uh, what about housing for people who fall below those income thresholds? How are they taken care of? So those are those are stipulated as the maximum thresholds that are allowed under federal law. Um, there's a lot of flexibility uh, built into the program. It's kind of like a, a, a 
kind of a, a kind of policy devolution, right? Like, so every state kind of implements the program differently and lays out the rules for the program within the federal guidelines through this qualified allocation uh, plan. Um, so it, it is possible. So the, 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 developers can sometimes be required or incentivized to uh, create units that are affordable to households below those federal uh, minimums, right, or maximums. So that's one way. And then the other way is uh, you don't, just because you don't earn 50% of the area median income doesn't mean you can't occupy the unit. In fact, very often uh, households with incomes far below the maximum threshold through the unit are occupying it. Um, but they very often end up being cost burdened. So they're paying, actually, they're paying more than they can afford uh, <laughs> for housing in an affordable housing program, which is one of the big issues in this program. Uh, so for many people, affordable housing isn't all that affordable. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, that being said, so, you know, it's a good question. So does it serve, just get, getting back to your point, question about whether it's, you know, how does it serve low-income households? It, it, the reality is that actually, uh, you know, the, the, the maximum thresholds under uh, federal law are 50%, 60% of AMI, right? Uh, but in practice, we know that over half of the tenants only earn about 30% of the area median income, which is pretty close to the poverty line, right? So they're very poor and they typically cannot afford these uh, tax credit units without rental assistance. So a lot of them, about 70% of them rely on some other form of rental assistance and other affordable housing programs actually be able to afford the tax credit unit. So talk a little about a bit about the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. What kinds of changes would this make to the tax credit program? Sure. I think uh, the, the most important change that we would like to see is a uh, 50 percent uh, basis boost uh, for projects that have set at least twenty uh, percent of their units aside for what the is lowest a income. Basis household. boost. Can you explain that to us? <laughs> so the basis boost is, um, in a nutshell, what we're saying is uh, a, a, a developer that sets aside more of their units for the lowest income households should get more credits. They should get more money to develop their project. Um, the basis boost is it's an increase to something called the eligible basis in a, in a project. And that's those are the eligible development costs. So it's um, a 30% increase to, to that amount, which is used to calculate the total amount of credits the the, the property actually So basically, gets. You're, you'd be creating an incentive for developers to serve some of those folks we were talking about before who exactly. might earn 30% right. of the median income. Or and to set, to set the units aside at lower, at a 30% AMI threshold, right? And because in the tax credit program, the rents... It, it, just to back up a second here, a very th important thing to understand about the tax credit program is that the rents are set in a very different way to other affordable, traditional affordable housing programs like public housing or housing choice vouchers, right? In those programs, the traditional kind of programs, the, the, the rent is capped at 30% of a tenant's income, okay? So, and, but in the tax credit program, the rent is capped at 30% of the income thresholds for the unit, not 30% of the tenant's income. And it's a little bit kind of a hard uh, thing to kind of distinguish between, but essentially what that means is that because the, the tax credit rents 
are based on the area median income. The area median income can go up every year, right? Without the tenant's income going up. So the rent can actually increase even though the tenant's income doesn't increase. And that's another factor that can lead to cost burdens in, in the program. Um, so that's a, that's a key difference and also a very, very important reason why we need more rental assistance <laughs> programs or funding for rental assistance so that people who are using, uh, people who are trying to lease a unit either in the private market or in a tax credit unit are actually not cost burden, right? So when these when these units are built and we're and as we've mentioned we're talking primarily apartments rental apartments uh, when they're built they're you know they meet an affordable uh, target you know as you may mention based on median income um, how do how do they stay do they are they required to stay that way forever or is there a period of time when the developer can turn around and say okay I'm done with this I'm gonna go get market rates for these things. Yeah, that's a great question. So, under federal law, the 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 prop the units have to remain affordable. The the affordability and eligibility requirements are required to stay there for at least thirty years. Um, there's also though something called the qualified contract loophole, in which an owner at around year fifteen of the project can actually. Uh, submit a qualified contract to the housing finance agency, the agency that administers the program in the state. And if the state isn't able to find an other buyer for the property, who's willing to operate it as affordable housing in the long term, uh, the affordability restrictions and eligibility restrictions are actually wound down over a three year period. So we've, we lose about 10,000 uh, tax credit units every year, just to that qualified contract loophole. And we've estimated that um, we've actually lost around 100,000 units to the qualified contract loophole since the since the 1990s. And would the Affordable Housing Credit and Improvement Act close that loophole? I believe that is a provision in the in, in that bill, or there is another reform bill uh, with that. Uh, that will close the qualified contract. So you mentioned that when this started back in 1986, this was an experimental program and uh, it wasn't wasn't really intended to become the primary driver of affordable housing construction in the United States. How did that happen? Why did it become such a popular means that it's effectively only the only way that that kind of housing is created in the United States. Um, What made this program so popular and what are we missing by focusing on just this tool? Um, So I think it became popular because it has bipartisan support. So it's, it's, it's something that Republicans are willing to vote for because it's a tax credit, right? And then Democrats as well. So I think that's one reason we've come to rely on it so heavily. Um, and developers like it because they get cash in their pockets, right? Right, exactly. And there's also, you know, the the popularity of this tax credit has spawned its own kind of industry, right? Which then is able to advocate for itself and continued expansion of the tax credit. And And so what, by focusing on this one tool, what are some of the other tools that may take place in other countries or other places uh, that we're missing? And, and what, what do we need to build the suite of affordable housing tools to actually meet the demand? Because clearly we're not meeting the demand. I think we need to fund uh, some of our existing programs like public housing, right? We have, I think in my view, we have the tools to solve these problems. We have public housing, 
We also had something my organization led uh, the effort to create called the National Housing Trust Fund, which is a, a deeply targeted program that will uh, that builds a, and uh, preserves units for the lo- specifically for the lowest income households. And those are the people who have the greatest housing needs. Um, and then there's also the rental assistance program. So there's uh, housing choice vouchers, right? And then uh, project-based rental assistance. And I think all of those programs together are really just underfunded. In, in reality, we actually only one in four people who qualify for housing assistance in America actually get it. So we, I think we have the tools. It's just a question of having the political will to fund them. One of the things, the other thing which is... Uh, fairly unique about the United States is that uh, real estate is the primary way by which uh, households accumulate wealth and pass it on to the next generation. And so if you're a renter uh, in the United States, you you are basically cut off from the primary means of, of accruing wealth and, and uh, holding on to it and to passing it on to the next generation. What is that healthy? Is that a, I mean, should we be looking at housing as our primary wealth investment tool or are there other things? Is, since housing is something you can't do without, is it fair that that's also the way that we uh, try and accumulate household wealth? That's a good question. I think, you know, um, I certainly don't think we should be uh, providing tax breaks to, you know, higher income people just because they've they've taken out a mortgage, right? So we have this, one of our biggest federal housing subsidies is something called the mortgage interest deduction, right? And that, that provides a massive amount of billions of dollars in tax breaks every year to people who really have no need for housing subsidy, right? So we, that comes out of the federal, essentially it comes out of the federal budget every year as a tax expenditure. We're losing tax revenue because of that program. And my organization, um, for a long time has advocated uh, the, the end of the mortgage interest deduction and uh, using the resulting revenue to invest in deeply affordable housing programs. Um, because we believe that the primary uh, purpose of federal housing policy should really be to promote housing stability, not necessarily uh, a speculative wealth creation. So the uh, turning back to the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, where is that act and what are the chances of it getting passed through this deeply divided and chaotic Congress? That I'm not the best person to answer your <laughs> questions about. I'm on the research side of things. So I'm, um, I know, it, I think that's really very much up in the air right now. Um, so we'll have to see. Uh, but you're right. Congress is really divided and everything is kind of ground to a standstill right now. So I think everything here, including, you know, everything from Ukraine aid to uh, all of our housing funding programs have kind of like ground to a halt. So we'll have to see how they deal with this kind of like upcoming cliff with the budget. We've been speaking with Dan Emanuel, research analyst with the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.